Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 105 of History of the Marine Corps, Defense of the Philippines. Shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, a coordinated assault targeted U.S. installations in the Philippines. Japan's fierce invasion would cause U.S. forces to withdraw into Bataan and lead to inexcusable brutalities, such as the infamous Bataan Death March. This episode takes a look at the battle from the Marine Corps perspective. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The history of how the Philippines came under United States possession is similar to Guam. The Treaty of Paris was signed on December 10, 1898, officially ending the Spanish-American War. Part of the treaty required the transfer of the possession of the Philippines from Spain to the United States. After ownership was handed over to the U.S., the first president of the Philippines, Emilio Aguinaldo, was furious about his country still under the control of another colonial ruler. He wanted independence for his nation, but the U.S. disagreed. This opposition was very controversial and criticized at the time. Many Americans were opposed to colonial rule, which makes sense, right? We just won our independence less than 125 years earlier. I'm sure many Americans had relatives who fought in the revolution. On the other hand, some U.S. citizens advocated for annexing the Philippines. They saw a lot of benefits for the commerce and security of the United States. The Philippines is important strategically, and the reason for keeping the nation under U.S. control could be boiled down to four reasons. One, this location allowed the U.S. to position naval forces on Pacific bases for long-term strategic needs. Two, it increased trade opportunities in Asia. Three, the U.S. was concerned about another foreign power moving in and controlling the island. And four, the U.S. didn't think Filipinos could establish and rule their own country. On December 21, 1898, President McKinley issued the Benevolent Assimilation Proclamation, which outlined his colonizing policies in the Philippines. In response, the Philippine Republic was declared, with Emilio Aguinaldo as its president. The Constitution was ratified on the 21st of January, 
but the United States still refused to recognize the Philippines as a legitimate government. The Marine Corps played a significant role in the early relationship with the Philippines. As tensions rose between the two nations, a joint naval-marine landing was conducted to destroy Philippine defenses. Marines from the Baltimore, Concord, and Charleston participated in this raid, and they were commanded by Captain J.T. Myers. The naval vessels bombarded Filipino defenses while U.S. troops focused on destroying the guns. Filipinos resisted the attack, but the U.S. ultimately succeeded in its mission. Resistance continued to grow in strength, and this three-year war resulted in the death of over 20,000 Filipino combatants and up to 200,000 civilians. The Marine Corps had some dark times during the Philippine-American War. I covered some of it during Episode 82, The Philippine-American War. I need to start being more creative with these titles. By 1941, there were around 25,000 U.S. troops on the island. There were also another 100,000 Filipinos who were trained in the Commonwealth's defense program, and they served in the Philippine Army. However, the men received only a few months of basic military instruction, and the majority lacked any experience with crew-served weapons. They didn't understand field maneuvers, and they didn't have adequate weapons and equipment. The U.S. War Department established a new unit in the Philippines, the United States Army Forces in the Far East, or USAFE. It included all U.S. and Philippine troops under its command. The leader of this new unit was Douglas MacArthur. In 1935, MacArthur became the military advisor to the Commonwealth Government of the Philippines. He retired from the Army two years later, but he continued to hold that role. In 1941, he was recalled into service and given the rank of lieutenant general. MacArthur recognized the weakness in the Philippine Army, and he immediately started the work to build up its strength. The War Department supported most of MacArthur's request for more men and supplies. The new Philippine unit received priority, and more than 7,000 troops were sent to help MacArthur. Admiral Thomas Hart, the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Navy Asiatic Fleet, strongly supported MacArthur's strategy of an aggressive defense and actively worked with USAFE preparations. The 16th Naval District, commanded by Francis Rockwell, was headquartered in the Philippines and was an essential part of the defense plan. The strength of this fleet was significant and included two cruisers, five destroyers, 27 submarines, 28 PBYs, 6 gunboats, 6 motor torpedo boats, and the 4th Marine Regiment. Despite orders to help defend the island, this unit reported directly to the Asiatic Fleet, not MacArthur. The independent reporting structure prohibited a unified command and would be a reoccurring issue throughout the Pacific Campaign. In the Philippines, this lack of a joint force impacted the coordination and cooperation toward the defense of U.S. installations. One of the key objectives was to deny Japanese forces access into Manila Bay. Shore establishments were prepared, and contact mines were laid with controlled minefields in the harbor's defenses, effectively closing it off. Corregidor Island resides in the mouth of the bay. 
It was designated as the Luzon Defensive Command Post. It had protected installations for naval headquarters, a radio intercept station, and a torpedo replenishing depot. Most of the fuel and ammunition were moved to Cavite, about 20 miles northeast, to minimize the risk of being lost to bombardment. In early 1941, Admiral Hart sent a letter to the Commandant of the Marine Corps and said that he was, quote, entirely convinced that the war was coming, unquote. He requested his force in China, which included seven Yangtze River boats and the 4th Marines, to leave before it was too late. By September, it was pretty obvious Japan was preparing for an attack. The American Consul General in Shanghai, along with Colonel Howard, the commander of the 4th Regiment, jointly recommended all naval forces be withdrawn. Approval was received on the Marine Corps birthday in 1941. After 14 years, the 800 Marines of the 4th Regiment left China in style. They marched down Bubbling Well Road, with drums beating and colors flying. They headed towards the dock while thousands of people lined the route and cheered. They boarded the merchant ships President Harrison and President Madison and headed towards the Philippines, arriving three days later at Alangapo on Subic Bay. Five of the gunboats also made it safely to Manila. The Marines were able to find temporary wooden barracks that were converted from warehouses currently under construction. Unfortunately, only half of the Marines were able to fit, and the remaining had to sleep in tents on the rifle range and the naval station. The training Marines received in Shanghai wasn't the best, and Hart was concerned with their experience. Quote, We all knew that they had been cooped up in Shanghai through all those years, where conditions for any sort of field training were very poor, and we thought that not much time remained. Unquote. Shortly after they laid down their packs, Marines were immediately sent to field training in the surrounding terrain. The two battalions alternated days and nights in the field. They were tasked to protect the naval stations on the island of Luzon, primarily Olongapo, and the Navy section base at Maryvilles. The first separate Marine battalion, commanded by Colonel John P. Adams, consisted of 700 Marines stationed at the Cavite Naval Yard. They were organized as a defense and infantry battalion. Batteries with 3-inch dual-purpose guns, 3-inch anti-aircraft guns, and 50 caliber machine guns were distributed throughout the area. After dropping off the 4th Regiment, the Harrison was supposed to turn around and head to North China to pick up the Marine Embassy guards and a few stragglers. By the time the ships were unloaded, it was too late, and Japan had launched its surprise attack. MacArthur's reinforcement plan was going well and on schedule. His new defensive strategy promised to hold back Japanese forces. However, he didn't anticipate the enemy to attack before April 1942. On December 8th, at 0257 Philippine time, a message arrived at the Asiatic Fleet headquarters confirming the attack on Pearl Harbor. Japan's surprise attack caused the reinforcements and supplies promised to MacArthur to be cut off. The first separate Marine battalion was placed on Condition 1 alert, and shortly after, the 4th Marines received a message from Hart, stating, quote, 
Japan started hostilities. Govern yourselves accordingly, unquote. First Lieutenant Austin Schaffner ran through the officer's billet and woke up the men, telling them they were at war. One Marine either didn't believe him or was pissed about being woken up, and he shouted, quote, Why don't you get out of here and let us sleep? Unquote. He managed to get every officer on duty, and Major Frank Pizek, the officer of the day, informed everyone at the Navy Yard. He rode in the sidecar of a motorcycle, shouting, War is declared! War is declared! Alerts were sounded to inform the 4th Marines of the news. Most of them had no idea what the sound meant. Corporal Chester C. Alderman said, quote, What kind of newfangled reveille is this? Unquote. After another Marine shouted, That's the general alarm! Everyone quickly jumped out of bed and assembled in formation in the dark. The executive officer for the 1st Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Freeney, still in his pajamas, briefed the Marines about the Pearl Harbor attack and informed them that the U.S. was at war with Japan. The Marines weren't remotely shocked by this news. In fact, one of the Marines even said, quote, They got us up for that? Unquote. Marines were instantly put to work setting up machine guns for anti-aircraft defense and digging fighting holes. Sergeant Pat Hitchcock recounted, quote, Every 15 minutes a quartermaster came by, passing out ammunition. They first passed out a five-round clip. A little later, they gave us enough ammunition to fill our rifle belts. Later still, they passed out bandoliers to drape over our shoulders. We looked like Mexican bandits. Unquote. The Marines in China soon found out the news about Japan's surprise attack. Second Lieutenant Richard M. Heisinger was waiting for the Harrison to return and pick up the remaining Marines. When he heard the news of Pearl Harbor, he rushed towards his 21 Marines, who were assigned as the loading detail at the docks. Upon his arrival, he found them surrounded by Japanese forces. In charge of the Marine Detachment at the time was Chief Marine Gunner William A. Lee. He set up a strong point in the boxcars of supplies and positioned two machine guns at the enemy. Multiple Tommy guns and bars had been distributed amongst the Marines. They were severely outnumbered but ready to fight. The lieutenant and a Japanese captain held an armed parley, where Japan demanded that he surrender the detachment. After passing the message to Major Luther A. Brown, the young lieutenant received orders to not resist and submit to the Japanese. Marines at Camp Holcomb, a military base in Chin Wang Tao, faced the same situation. The senior Marine, Colonel William Ashurst, was given until noon to surrender the 200 men. He determined that there was no purpose in fighting. Strategically, their position wasn't vital to the war, and resisting would only result in pointless bloodshed. He ordered his men to lay down their arms. For the next two days, the 4th Marines and the 1st Separate Marine Battalion helped build the Philippines' defenses. 36 machine guns from the 2nd Battalion were positioned around Alangopo Navy Yard as an anti-aircraft defense. Beach defenses were established in the northern part of Subic Bay, and bivouac sites were constructed two miles outside of the Navy Yard. 
demolition teams were created and positioned to destroy the bridges north of Olongapo if the Japanese forces landed in that area. Firefighting detachments were assembled and placed in Cavite and Olongapo. The regimental band assigned to Echo Company was changed to a rifle platoon. Japanese Lieutenant General Masaharu Homa, in command of the 14th Army, was responsible for attacking the Philippines. The invasion was planned in detail, all the way down to the hour. It called for the complete destruction of the Far East Air Force and the capture of critical airfields. The attack was initially scheduled to align with the assault on Pearl Harbor, but thick clouds and heavy fog delayed the takeoff from Formosa, 500 miles away. Japanese pilots began their flight at noon. Assuming they lost the element of surprise, they prepared to be met with resistance. However, U.S. and Philippine opposition was light, and Japan destroyed multiple aircraft and radar equipment. Japanese forces also landed unopposed on Batten Island, a small island between the Philippines and Taiwan, not to be confused with Bataan. Here, they seized an airbase, and established a base for their infantry. The Far East Air Force was reduced by half, and Japan established air superiority in the Philippines on the first day of the war. On the 9th, Japan controlled the northern parts of the island chain. Troops continued to move south, destroying aircraft and other installations along the way. With most of the planes destroyed, Admiral Hart realized his naval vessels did not have the proper protection from Japanese fighters. Instead of risking his fleet, he moved his ships south to Australia. With dwindling supplies and the potential for this battle to last a while, Colonel Howard restricted the 4th Marines' rations. Marines were only fed twice daily. Quote, breakfast before daylight and dinner after dark. Unquote. As the Japanese bombers closed in on Manila, they were concerned about the defenses they would encounter. They had a good reason to be nervous. Almost all the anti-aircraft units in Yusefi were concentrated in this area. But there was a problem. Even though the concentration of anti-aircraft guns had plenty of ammunition, it wasn't fused for heights higher than 24,000 feet. Japanese bombers noticed this weakness and quickly learned they could drop bombs at 25,000 feet with little resistance. Marine anti-aircraft guns were able to score just one kill on an enemy plane that flew too low. All other aircraft stayed out of range from the guns. As Japanese bombs hit their targets, fires lit up everywhere. Firefighters worked tirelessly to stop it from spreading to ammunition depots. Rescue parties were also sent into burning buildings to search for any of the hundreds of civilian casualties. The fires raged into the following day. They were so bad that Admiral Rockwell ordered all personnel to evacuate the base. A few firefighters were left behind and they were able to save the commissary and ammunition depot. On December 10th, two combat teams from the 2nd Formosa Regiment of the 48th Division landed on Luzon. The landing was supported by two heavy cruisers two destroyers, and Japanese fighter planes stationed at the now-Japan-controlled Batten Island. About 2,000 Japanese troops landed at Vigan, and the Tanaka Detachment, which was around the same strength, landed at Apari, 
100 miles northeast. The two battalions started moving south towards Manila. Since the Japanese focused their attacks on airfields in Manila, Marines weren't in the crosshairs of Japan until the 10th, but they still experienced an average of six air raid alarms per day. Lieutenant Colonel Beecher originally ordered his Marines to scatter every time they heard the siren, but after finding out that work wasn't getting done because Marines were constantly scattering from the multiple alarms, he changed his order. The Marines continued to work regardless of whether a siren was going off. Air raid structures were built in preparation for Japanese aircraft, and everyone rigorously followed blackout procedures. Lights were not used at night, and windows were blacked out with cardboard or paint to prevent light from escaping. Around noon on December 10th, aircraft engines were heard in the distance, followed quickly by an air raid siren. Marines ran to the porch of the barracks for a better view. They watched as 54 aircraft in three large V formations moved towards them. All eyes were focused on the planes, and most people thought they were friendly and from the Army Air Corps. It wasn't until a dogfight kicked off below the formation that the Marines started to get suspicious. The Japanese planes began dropping their payload. At first, one Marine shouted, quote, Look at those leaflets come down. Unquote. Everyone quickly understood what was happening, and another Marine yelled, Leaflets? Hell, they're bombs. Marines instantly opened fire as Japanese bombs continued to hit their mark. PFC Leslie Scoggin was plotting data for the nearby batteries, but he soon found out that Japanese aircraft were flying higher than the range of the guns. Charlie Battery fell under 1st Lieutenant Wilfred D. Holdridge. When a young PFC reported the aircraft's height, he ordered him to retake the reading. And when the measurements returned the same distance, Holdridge still didn't believe the outcome and took the reading himself. After receiving similar results, he ordered the battery to fire at the aircraft anyway. 1st Lieutenant Carter Simpson later recounted, quote, we were left with a sense of fatality which was renewed every time our eyes fell on the yard across the bay. A toy pistol would have damaged their planes as much as we did. Unquote. The Japanese attacks killed PFC Thomas L. Weatherington, making him the first Marine killed defending the Philippines. PFC George Sparks had a narrow escape himself while on guard duty. He took cover in a worn path next to the Naval District Headquarters, a bomb blew a tree on top of him, but the road that was only a few inches deep gave him enough space to stop the tree crushing him to death. The bombing was intense and fell throughout the island. Private Jack Thompson remembered, quote, When you hear one of those bombs coming down, you think it's coming down the back of your neck. Unquote. As the Japanese completed their assault and headed to their home base, an aid station was set up in the library of the Marine Barracks, which was probably the most use that room has ever seen. About 1,000 civilians were reported killed and more than 500 were wounded. Marines formed firefighter parties and began extinguishing the fires throughout the compound. The Filipino firefighters surrounded the ammunition dump and prevented the fire from reaching the explosives. However, they couldn't protect the torpedo warehouse and occasional explosions prevented them from putting out the fire. This was a problem for the Marines in Battery F, 
the exploding torpedoes blocked their escape from the dock. Captain Pulo ordered his Marines to build rafts out of anything they could find and evacuate people, weapons, and ammunition. At night, everyone except a handful of Marines and local firemen were evacuated and transported by truck off base. They set up a camp 15 miles away. After a sleepless night, Marine detachments were sent back to defend the abandoned base. And by noon, admin came back as well and continued their work. New trenches were dug, and working parties started to bury the dead civilians. Dump trucks were filled with the dead, and Marines hand-dug graves with shovels for 250 bodies alone. The first attack on the 4th Marines at Alangapo came on December 12th. Japanese fighters followed the PBYs back to Alangapo after their search for the enemy carrier task force. Enemy pilots destroyed every one of those seaplanes at their moorings. As the fighters continued to strafe the naval stations, Marines fired at them with their 30 caliber machine guns. Colonel Howard noticed that the tracer rounds seemed to be, quote, bouncing off these planes, indicating sufficient armor plate to prevent penetration, unquote. The defenders did extraordinarily little to the enemy aircraft, but that didn't stop the Marines from trying. Master Technical Sergeant Ivan Buster recounted a story about PFC Thomas Allender, who was stationed on the water tower with the 30 caliber machine gun. Allender constantly engaged the enemy craft, and Buster stated, quote, That goddamn plane was shooting at him. He'd run around to the other side of the tank, and the guy would go by, and then the guy would come back, and he'd run around to the other side of the tank again, unquote. Allender didn't receive a scratch during the engagement, but the tower he was on was riddled with bullet holes, and water was spraying everywhere. There was also a gunnery sergeant who laid on his back in a ditch and fired at the aircraft with his 45 caliber pistol. When asked why he was firing, he replied, quote, This makes me feel better, unquote. After the hour-long attack on the 12th, Sergeant Pat Hitchcock jokingly reported, quote, they evidently were not impressed because they were very casual about their strafing runs, unquote. But Japan wasn't done. The following day, 27 bombers would reappear to continue their attack. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will dig into part two of the defense of the Philippines. This week's audiobook is Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. I've been rebuilding my deck for longer than I'd like to admit. Whoever originally constructed it did a horrible job, and I essentially had to start from the ground up. It's been frustrating, but the bright side is that I get to listen to a lot of books while I'm working. I was able to knock out Outliers this weekend. It's a pretty short book, and it gave me a whole new perspective on how one becomes successful. The concept is pretty simple. The more time you dedicate into something, the better you'll be at it. I think this is something that most of us understand. So the book really isn't exposing any hidden secrets to success. But what really blew my mind about it was how important timing fits into the equation. Gladwell takes a look at outliers. People who stand above the rest. right? The best of the best. The book opens up talking about professional hockey players in Canada and how if they aren't born between January and March, 
chances are pretty good that they wouldn't be a professional player. He looks at Bill Gates, tech moguls, business leaders in the 19th century, the Beatles, and many other demographics and professions to argue that talent has very little, if anything, to do with success. It depends on the right timing, coupled with a lot of work. It's a really fascinating perspective. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.